Hey there, ever thought about what makes your heart beat a little faster? Oh, you mean like when you discover a new track that just speaks to you? Yeah, or finding a movie that you can't stop thinking about? Well, get ready to feel that excitement all over again because Amazon Prime is here to take your entertainment and shopping experience to the next level. Absolutely. Prime isn't just about getting your packages quicker. It's about diving into a world of endless possibilities, from the latest releases to exclusive content you won't find anywhere else. And don't even get me started on the music. Prime offers concert specials that will transport you right to the front room. It's like being at the hottest gigs without leaving your living room. I use Prime to tap in with some of my favorite artists' live shows from any and every genre of music. Trust me, Prime is a game changer. It's like having a personalized superstore and entertainment hub right at your fingertips. So why wait? Head over to Amazon.com forward slash Prime and start experiencing entertainment like never before. Revolt Black News, presented by State Farm. Tonight on Revolt Black News Weekly. To the victims in this case, your voices were heard and justice was finally served. R. Kelly is guilty on nine federal charges. Our panel breaks down the defense's less is more strategy. So I think when you sat that enormous amount of victims in a trial, it just became so overwhelming. And which has more power in the court of law, testimony or cancel culture? Then... It didn't sit right with me. Um, that's why I ended up getting my own private investigator. Now you've seen the lack of missing black persons coverage, but how are folks taking action into their own hands? It's Missing While Black, the do-it-yourself era. And get the flowers ready, because Tiana Taylor announced her farewell tour while Drake's busy giving J. Cole some flowers of his own. And we're breaking down the disparity of black housing, from appraising the history all the way to the new migration. And Rihanna's under fire. While her Fenty fashion show nearly broke the internet, sending social media into quite a tailspin over claims of cultural appropriation. We've got all that and more tonight on Revolt Black News Weekly. Welcome to Revolt Black News Weekly. I'm your host, Ebony K. Williams. Now, after seven weeks in a Brooklyn federal courtroom, Robert Sylvester Kelly was found guilty on nine counts, one for racketeering conspiracy and eight counts of violating the Mann Act, including bribery and sexual exploitation of a child. Now, the trial moved fast, but why? What led to that guilty verdict that potentially puts the R&B legend behind bars for life? To the victims in this case, your voices were heard and justice was finally served. Multiple jurors from R. Kelly's 2008 acquittal on child pornography charges said the absence of testimonial witnesses hurt the prosecution's case. This time around, though, the prosecution used testimony to their advantage. This conviction would not have been possible without the bravery and resilience of R. Kelly's victims. But it wasn't just the testimony. It was the picture that the prosecution painted, because the feds painted an entirely different picture. 
Six weeks of testimony, 50 witnesses, 45 for the prosecution and five for the defense. The prosecution argues those witnesses and the evidence show that Robert Sylvester Kelly ran an enterprise of assistants, bodyguards and others, all used to, quote, target, groom and exploit girls, boys and young women for his own sexual gratification. And what about R. Kelly's defense team? They went with a less is more approach. In hindsight, would more have been better? Or did they do just enough? They cherry-picked a version and ran with that version. They totally ignore the inconsistencies uh, that all of these witnesses gave. And now, parts of the culture are comparing the convicted singer to comedian Bill Cosby. So will he be canceled? Was he already canceled? You know, he's, he's going through his problems. Oh, he's going right? through some shit. Yeah, he's, he's flawed. Uh -huh. Nobody's perfect. He's flawed. And, I'm, you know, what he's done is, is what he's done, and he has to account for his, you know, his, his things that he's done. Mm -hmm. But the art, do we throw it away? Right. Like, like Bill Cosby, do we stop do really we watching the Cosby show? Or are some icons untouchable? Free R. Kelly! Why money ain't no enterprise? The government needs to stop selling lies! In the end, what went right? What went wrong? And does the answer depend on who's asking? I don't know if I'm more disappointed in the jury's verdict or the government's action in this case. The jury has spoken, so now we're going to bring in a former prosecutor who currently is a criminal defense attorney and she's senior trial counsel at Joey Jackson Law, Bernada Villalona. Also with us is an Atlanta attorney who represents the family of Jocelyn Savage, one of R. Kelly's victims, Gerald Griggs. And joining us is executive producer of the Emmy-nominated docu-series Surviving R. Kelly, Ms. Tamara Simmons. Welcome you all to the show. Gerald, you represent the family of Jocelyn Savage, one of R. Kelly's very many victims. Can you give us an update um, on what is going on with the family and their efforts to reconnect with her? Well, first and foremost, the family is thankful for the work of the Eastern District of New York and Homeland Security for securing a conviction in this case and thankful to the jury. They are continuing to try to make contact directly with Joycelyn Savage. They spoke with her about a month ago, and now that Mr. Kelly has been convicted, they're hopeful that they will get continuous contact and bring her home as many of the other survivors have been brought back to their home and reconnected with loving yeah. environments. So they're hopeful for that, uh, but they will continue to pursue justice. We do know Mr. Kelly has three other cases, including the Northern District of Illinois, as well as the two cases, one in Cook County and the other in Minnesota. So they will continue to cooperate. We fully anticipate uh, that other survivors will come forward and testify in those cases. And hopefully we can reunite Joyce and Savage with her family. Indeed. And Bernada, back to the criminal prosecution. I know we spoke just uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, right before uh, there was um, the, the finish of the defense strategy. Obviously, the convictions speak for themselves. Where do you think the defense went wrong here? Or was it just too much overpowering evidence from the prosecutor? So I think they went wrong in several respects. However, still, regardless of where they went wrong, I think that the deck was stacked against them because you're dealing with that there were six Jane Doe's that were listed in the indictment. But aside from those six Jane Doe's, you're also talking about unnamed Jane Doe's that testified at trial and not just Jane Doe's, but as well as two John Doe's that testified at trial. So I think when you stack that enormous amount of victims in a trial, it just became 
became so overwhelming. And you can tell that it became so overwhelming by how fast the jury was able to reach a verdict in nine hours, given all the amount and the complexity of the charges in this case. If anything, I will say that their closing arguments, I was there for both sides' closing arguments, they did give a good closing argument, given the facts that they were faced. I think that's why that jury was able to at least stay out for a couple hours and not automatically come back with a conviction. And in addition to that, the defense was successful as to one Jane Doe, and that's Jane Doe number three, Sonia, because the jury did not find that the prosecution prove that act, those acts count four and five, relating to uh, relating to Jane Doe number three, Sonia, the kidnapping and the coercion and the sexual abuse. Those are some great, brilliant points. Final questions on this, Counselor. Uh, do you expect to see a life sentence? Uh, I, I believe it's 20 years maximum for each uh, count of the racketeering statute. How, how much time do you anticipate Robert Kelly being sentenced to? So for the first count of the indictment, the RICO charge, the racketeering charge, the most he can get is 20 years. So in regards to the other charges, one of those charges, a minimum of 10 years to life. I can tell you this, I don't see R. Kelly seeing the light of day. He is done. He's going to spend the rest of his life in prison, given his age, and also that the judge is going to sentence him into consecutive time because you're talking about multiple victims in this case. So I don't see anything less than 25 years in this case. You know, in this nation, and we could speak globally, uh, there is a systemic lack of ability to see black girls and black women as victims. Uh, we see it uh, in every aspect of society, and we see it play out in the criminal justice system a lot. Can you speak to how important it was when you all were uh, creating uh, what surviving R. Kelly looked like, that you really did humanize and give a voice to these black women and black girls um, so that this day of justice could be seen? Yeah, <clears throat> excuse me, from the very beginning, um, that's all I really wanted. I wanted, um, you know, some of the women told me they've never told anybody their story, and here I am a stranger, um, but I'm a mother as well, and I told them, don't look at me as a television producer, look at me as a woman. You know, you could be saving someone like me, um, saving my daughter from going through these things by telling your story. So I always say these women, they're heroes to me for our future sons and daughters. And, you know, they, they're giving us, all of us, a voice, um, not only to speak up about sexual abuse, but just to give us a voice and let us be heard about anything we want to talk about. So um, I just appreciate all the survivors for trusting, you know, our team to be able to put their stories together. And um, I appreciate the world for accepting these women and hearing their stories. And I'm just thankful for the outcome. Bernarda, uh, Gerald, Tamara, we want to thank you all for your time and your incredible work. We've got a lot more show ahead. We've got Rihanna's Savage Fenty show and the cultural appropriation backlash. But up next. Hey there, ever thought about what makes your heart beat a little faster? Oh, you mean like when you discover a new track that just speaks to you? Yeah. Or finding a movie that you can't stop thinking about? Well, get ready to feel that excitement all over again because Amazon Prime is here to take your entertainment and shopping experience to the next level. Absolutely. Prime isn't just about getting your packages quicker. It's about diving into a world of endless possibilities, from the latest releases to exclusive content you won't find anywhere else. And don't even get me started on the music. Prime offers concert specials that will transport you right to the front room. It's like being at the hottest gigs without leaving your living room. 
I use Prime to tap in with some of my favorite artists' live shows from any and every genre of music. Trust me, Prime is a game changer. It's like having a personalized superstore and entertainment hub right at your fingertips. So why wait? Head over to Amazon.com forward slash Prime and start experiencing entertainment like never before. We're going to get into Tiana Taylor. She's going to break some breaking news around touring. It's all coming up next in the entertainment update when Revolt Black News continues. Welcome back to Revolt Black News Weekly. We have guest correspondent Sarah Lovestyle with all your weekly entertainment headlines. This week, the official trailer for Kanye West's Netflix documentary, Genius, is here. Drake joins J. Cole on stage in Miami, plus a big festival announcement, while Kelly Price is breaking her silence since MIA reports surfaced. Yo Gotti is now part owner of DC United Soccer Club, and rapper Annalie Chopwood launches a vegan food truck in Memphis. Here's your Revolt Black News Entertainment Weekly update. Singer Tiana Taylor has announced her final farewell tour after announcing her retirement in late 2020. Taylor spoke about her recent retirement on her new e-series, We Got Love, Tiana and Iman. The music is not the issue. It's my situation that is the issue. They won't release me. But it's like the more I do stuff, the doper it is, I'm making money for somebody else. I can't let them change me, cause on Judgment Day, you gon' blame me. The official trailer for an upcoming Netflix documentary following Kanye West is here. Genius spans over the course of Kanye's 20-year-long career and is directed by Through the Wire directors Cootie and Chike. You are genuinely, without a doubt, one of the greatest rappers to ever come during a recent Miami concert stop, rapper J. Cole brought out Drake and the two shared a very special moment. Cole recently dropped a remix to Drake's new track, Pipe Down. Some people say that I'm running third, they threw the bronze at me, behind Drake and Dot, yeah, them is the superstars to me. And the greatest rapper J. Cole has announced the return of his annual Dreamville Festival is set to return in April of 2022. Tickets are set to go on sale Friday, October 1st. There's a lot more in entertainment to discuss, so let's get into it. Joining me this week are media personalities, Jameer Pond, Danny Canada, and Scott Evans. Y'all, welcome to the show. First up, we're going to start on a heavier side. Singer Kelly Price made headlines after TMZ reported that the friend of mine singer was missing in Georgia following a battle with COVID-19. Social media users rallied around finding the singer, prompting her to break her silence. This comes as the number of missing black and brown people has reached an all-time high, many of which are not getting any mainstream media coverage. Leaving the question, is human value based off of net worth or network? For me, this is for me, I'm not speaking for the panel. I think uh, as, as we see um, stories being publicized more of people with lighter hues and lighter eyes. I think it's pretty apparent uh, who mainstream media targets as important. So I don't know if it has to do with your network or your net worth might have to do with a little bit of the skin color, you know? So, I mean, right. maybe if you were blue eyed, blonde haired black person, you might get a little bit more media attention. But 
uh, for us, it's always a little more difficult to get out there when we talk about mainstream media coverage. And it's unfortunate because we have to do our own investigating as we see with Kelly Price. The reason that this got attention is not because of Kelly's net worth, it's because she's a huge celebrity, you know? So, and the story was so bizarre. It had the makings of a Dateline episode. There was this mysterious boyfriend who allegedly the family couldn't get in contact with and they couldn't find Kelly. So that's why I got so much attention because there's this beloved figure. We don't know what happened. We're getting conflicting reports. But as for me, like I had to reach out to the Cobb County, Georgia, the police department to figure out what happened. We had to reach out to a family member to figure out what happened. There was just so much um, drama there that it was a salacious story. So of course it's gonna get attention. And it's not because Kelly's rich, it's just because she's Kelly Price. Do they play a role in who makes news and what is news? Unfortunately, yeah, I think I think it is part of it. Unfortunately, totally. I'm gonna switch some gears here on a lighter note. So rapper Yo Gotti is now part owner in my hometown, in DC, the United Soccer Club, the Memphis music mogul has invested an undisclosed amount in the soccer club with three other investors and expanded ownership group. So we're seeing a lot more rappers investing more in sports. Eventually, do we anticipate major stakeholders for sports teams and what will it take for us to get there? As more and more black people or people of people who, um, identify as people of color, as as more and more have access to more and more, they are going to do more and more. As we learn more and more about opportunities, about uh, expanding our wealth, generating wealth, generational wealth, we're gonna tap into those systems that already exist that grant those uh, experiences to people who have long been sitting at that table, right? So certainly I think you're gonna see more and more people um, get out of the grill game and into the real game, which is generational wealth. Well, one thing I was gonna say is I think it's really cool that Yo Gotti invested in a soccer team. And I think that it's smart of him to do that because that is so profitable. And I really mm -hmm. hope that in my hometown of Atlanta that we can do something like that. I want to see more black people in, invest in sports that are, you know, maybe not the most popular. We got, we really got the power to make anything popular. I want, I want to see, you know, a rugby yes. team being sponsored, okay. you know, may, maybe, maybe a, a hockey team, you know, get some brothers on Love skate. It. I would love to see that, you know, maybe a figure Come skating on. coalition. Like we, we got the ability to make things cool. You know what I'm saying? Like we can step yeah. outside of the box and, and invest in sports that don't really have that market. And I think that'll drive it home. I am loving it. Not to mention, Jameer, you are absolutely correct. We set the trends, we create the shift in culture. So with that being said, this is actually something I'm super excited about. Memphis rapper NLE Chapa has opened a vegan food truck. This can't be vegan. The rapper started living a vegan lifestyle <laughs> in August of 2020. I know, I love it. This can't be vegan. I like that name. So he changed That's it. a great name. I love it. That's a great name. He, um, it's definitely memorable. I'll give it to him. So he went vegan in August of 2020, and he hoped that the food truck would make a difference in the crime rate. So artists are often criticized for their lyrics versus their lifestyle. So do we foresee younger generations changing this narrative? I absolutely think so. I think the younger generation of rappers are just more free. Yeah. They're open to being themselves. Yeah. So I feel like there are... 
plenty of young rappers who are leading into them true selves, like Emily Chopper. There's also a power that we're awakening to. There is a um, a confidence. There is a strength and authority that we are standing in that that we've not. We're no longer going to allow someone else to define what our success looks like, what our buy-in looks like, what our community looks like, what our wins look like, our losses look like. That we're going to start. We're going. We are going to finally be in, a, in positions to define them ourselves. A lot of people eat and drink the things that they do because of pain, and black right. people we are go through the most pain, you know, we top contenders as far as going through pain and having to right. be resilient through it uh, in, in this country, in this world. So I under, like, I, I don't necessarily agree, but I understand people cope how they cope. But if we get one person or two people or three people to be able to, to just say, hey, you know, I'm going to try something, you know, try something new out of my mm -hmm. comfort zone, that trickles down. You know what I love about this generation? They have the audacity to create the change that they want. Thank you all so, so much for joining me today. Up next, Ebony is back with a bigger conversation about the rising number of missing black and brown people. That's straight ahead on Revolt Black News Weekly. While the search for Jelani Day's body is over, the family's attorney is adamant that Jelani was the victim of foul play, and they remain hopeful that the FBI will find a suspect as they've now gotten involved in the case. Reasons why Jelani's story went unreported for so long is what is being referred to as missing white woman syndrome. Now, the phrase was coined by the late great newscaster Gwen Ifill, and it calls attention to the media's propensity to focus solely on missing white women while ignoring the vast amounts of missing black people who today account for over 30% of the missing. Now, if this reporting is indeed a syndrome, then we're gonna look at some of the symptoms of our society and how black Americans are treating it because there are organizations and individuals who are now circumventing standard investigatory procedures. Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba -da -ba -ba -ba. And reporting today in a new do-it-yourself era. Daniel Robinson uh, is a young black man. He's only 24 years old, five foot eight, 165, black hair, brown eyes. That's his description. His dad has hired a private investigator to find him. Once his vehicle was found and the way it was found, um, it, it just didn't look right. It didn't sit right with me. Uh, that's why I ended up getting my own private investigator. A father driven like many black Americans to hire out or become a private investigator themselves to find missing loved ones. But it's important that you see that she had family. She has, she has people that love her and go to bat for her. Right now, I wanna be able to say, I've exhausted everything I possibly can, every idea, every suggestion, and every thought trying to find this child. Taking matters into their own hands and seeking resources and turning to black organizations like the Foundation for Missing People of Color directly. We've worked with thousands of families across the United States, and since our inception, we've helped reunite or bring closure to over 400 families. Arizona news anchor Shandria Thomas has made the cause her side hustle through her intrigued Full Effect podcast to help families find their loved ones. 
if I can do my part as far as having this podcast, I can tell any story I want about whoever I want, however I want, for however long I want to. Actions taken as missing people of color are very seldom part of the broader media, thus a general disparity in coverage. And where exactly is the white collective in support of black do-it-yourselfers? White America has proved to quickly post the sturdy social justice hashtags or post a black box on Instagram in solidarity. In 2019, Netflix released a true crime docuseries called Don't F With Cats, Hunting an Internet Killer. It was about a white Facebook group who sought out a killer after he live streamed the murder of a feline. It won a Primetime Creative Arts Emmy Award and its trailer on YouTube has almost 3.6 million views. Leah Gordon's YouTube channel, Black Girl News, breaks unreported crime stories relating to black women and black girls. Now, most of her videos are in the low hundreds of thousands. However, her story of 28-year-old YouTuber Brianna Johnson, who was found dead in the trunk of her car, well, it has over one million views. That gap in viewership speaks volumes. Is it an imbalance in resources? Is it a lack of celebrity? Or do black rights, and in this case, missing persons of color, do they simply not get the same groundswell human rights support when compared to something like animal rights issues? Answers can be found in history, in particular parts of the segregated South, where some road signs read, no Jews, no dogs. And some black residents can recount how that signage wouldn't even bother to include black people. Road signs are rules and the manhunt to find the celebrity cat killer was based on one very important rule. Rule zero, don't with cats. So will white America ever apply that unwritten rule to its black citizens? And as seen with singer and celebrity Kelly Price, what unwritten rules should black citizens question and hold accountable within? Okay, joining me now is one of the very few people whose work you saw in the film. Leah Gordon is of Black Girl News and also with us is Minnesota State Representative and member of Minnesota's Task Force on Missing and Murdered Black Women and Girls, Ms. Ruth Richardson. Also with us, Vontria Palmer-Mobley. She's the mother of Brittany Palmer, who was last seen in Jacksonville, Florida in August of 2020. Ladies, welcome you all to the show. Ventria, I want to start with you. Um, at this point, you are literally boots on the ground. You are walking around Jacksonville. You're wearing T-shirts. You're holding up uh, photos of your beautiful daughter. And you are offering out cash rewards, upwards of $5,000. Uh, tell me about the yes. circumstances that have brought you to that position. Um, this year made a year that she's been missing. Um, I haven't got very much of any answers. And when I came out with the reward, I feel like uh, a lot of people will start talking. Somebody would say something. Um, just trying to get answers. We know that the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office report that your daughter was last seen in August of last year. And then you received a call from her cell phone. Tell us a little bit about what that experience was like and what happened after that. Uh, Monday morning, about 3 a.m., I get a call, but I didn't hear a call. So I was like, okay, she woke me up. I'm going to call her and I'm going to wake her up 6.30 in the morning on my way going to work. Call back. Wait a minute. This is not Brittany. The lady hung up in my face. I found out where this man's mom stayed. I found out her name. I was like, basically like, hey, I'm giving the, the detectives all the information they needed 
numbers, everything they needed. And I feel like they're doing their job, but they're not doing their job. Like Brittany's just like, okay, she's just missing. Just she'll turn up. I think that's where these alternative uh, mechanisms of outlets and, and platforms become so helpful, like the work that Leah is doing. So Leah, I know you started a fantastic YouTube channel where you actually report on so many of the stories that go unreported about black and missing girls. What led you specifically to do this incredible work, Leah? Well, I saw a need for it. I'm very passionate about helping those who look like me. My first story was about a 28-year-old realtor who was lured to a fake house showing and killed. I have several friends that are realtors, and I thought we needed a platform to highlight these stories so that we could prevent these things from happening again and so that justice will be served for the victims. Yeah, the politics of visibility are indeed powerful. Uh, I know you know that all too well, Representative Richardson. Uh, you are part of Minnesota's historic task force, the first actually in the whole nation uh, to specify, focus on missing and murdered black women. What can you tell us about where the task force is now and what discussions uh, and timelines you may have? The legislation just passed and was signed into law this past legislative session. So with the appointments, we are waiting for the first convening to begin. We'll meet for the next 12 months. And with that uh, committee, we will be looking at centering the voices of individuals who are closest to the pain of this issue. So hearing from the families that have been impacted and having them mm -hmm. at the, the table as we're talking with all of the different systems that play a role in the under-reporting um, the under-resourcing uh, and finding um, uh, Black women and, and girls. And the, you know, the one thing that I will say that is um, just heartbreaking, you know, the story, um, Sentry, that you're sharing today about your daughter, Brittany, I, I would hope that that would be an isolated incident. But from what we have been hearing and what we have been seeing, the um, uh, response of law enforcement so often is not enough. And we have seen mm. too many uh, Black families forced to undertake their own investigations. Ventria, uh, before we go, your personal experience is just so, um, it's so moving and it's so tremendous. So I wanna make sure you have the last word here. What, what would you leave our audience with when it comes to where, where they can show up and be uh, effective and making sure that these young girls like your sweet daughter, Brittany, and other black girls and women uh, have a voice and have some resources and a support system. My thing is, starting with us as parents, just try to know where our girls are at all times. Even if it's just a phone call to say, hey, even if you leaving to go to the store or you with a friend, call someone, let somebody know something that it kind of breaks my heart because I knew my daughter called me every day and let me know where she was. You know, I feel us now as a community, we need to stick closer to us as women. We stick close. I know God made no mistakes. That's my number one. God made no mistakes. Whatever he decides, I'm at peace. I am, but my number one goal, I just want to find Brittany. I really want to find Brittany. Leah, Representative Ruth Richardson, and Vontria, we thank you all so much for your time and sharing uh, these deeply personal and important stories. Thank you.
All right, y'all, up next we have a conversation on inclusion and cultural appropriation, of course stemming from the Savage Fenty backlash. But up next, we have a panel on appraising the housing history in the black community. So stick around, we've got much more of Old Black News after this. Welcome back to Revolt Black News Weekly. I'm your guest correspondent, Rochelle Ritchie, here to... Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cutoff? Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. ...lead a very important conversation about real estate in the Black community. And joining me for this discussion is Ross Mack of Maconomics, who's going to break down how real estate helps to build generational wealth and why it's so important. Ross, thank you so much for joining me here on Revolt Black News. Now, one of the questions I really want to get to is how real estate helps to build generational wealth. We hear about buying property all of the time in the black community. Unfortunately, a lot of people cannot do it. And a lot of us don't really understand how owning property or or some form of real estate helps to build that wealth in our families. Can you break down how that actually works? 90% of the world's millionaires were actually created by investing in real estate. When you understand that, having the ability to actually own a hard asset that's going to appreciate in value year over year, not only that, but have the ability to actually pass this on to your next generation. Because at the end of the day, right, if you really look at what rent is versus actually paying a mortgage, quite often you end up paying more in rent than you would actually do in owning an actual property. It gives you a very great ability to start building generational wealth, giving your children something to actually inherit when you actually pass on. Now, when we think about like first time home buyer, there are a lot of incentives out there. There's a lot of programs out there to help people. Where can they find that kind of information? If you are able to just literally Google an FHA approved lender, you'll be able to one, see one, how to actually apply. Right. And I think that once you start understanding it, there's actually a few cheat codes to actually becoming a homeowner. If you have over a 580 credit score, a minimum of a 580 credit score, you could actually put down only three and a half percent to actually become a homeowner. And here's where it actually gets a little better because you can actually buy a multi-unit. So you could actually live in one unit in a multi-unit, that being a three flat, a four flat, and you can then rent out all the other units to actually become a landlord. If you actually have a property where you have four tenants, guess what? The rent that they're paying you every month is now going to be deemed as income. So now you could actually leverage that and actually get your dream home. That's awesome and great information for people that are watching. You know, there's been some recent articles that show that, you know, a home evaluations for black Americans is being appraised lower than people, non-black people. Why do you think that is? Well, I think it just boils down to purely systemic racism, right? I think that if you look back in the historical context, when it was actually hard for black Americans to actually get a home loan, right? When it came from either redlining, there is a huge systemic racism embedded in the actual culture when it comes to giving loans, whether it's going to get a auto loan or a mortgage loan. And one final question, I hope you don't mind answering this, but I think even if people are putting down three and a half percent, 
um, some people are thinking to themselves, I don't have even three and a half percent. So what can they start to do to prepare themselves to at least be able to put down that three and a half percent if they qualify for one of those programs? When it comes to truly trying to build generational wealth, you got to start out budgeting. You know, a lot of people, you know, they try to attack a problem just head on when it's, in fact, if you write it down, right, and you actually can come with a very, you know, concise formulated plan, then you could actually, you know, you could actually do it. Well, Ross, I want to thank you. Um, you've given us a lot of information. Obviously, you know, home ownership is really important, especially when you consider that black wealth is supposed to hit net zero and here in the next, what, 30 or so years. So very important conversation. So I really appreciate you joining us tonight. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Now, we want to continue this conversation about ownership. There's been numerous reports showing that many Black people are starting to migrate back to the South, back to their roots, and we want to figure out why this is. So joining us now is realtor Jeffrey St. Arrowman. Jeffrey, thank you so much for joining us here on Revolt Black News Weekly. Now, the census shows that a lot of Black people are starting to go back to their roots. They're moving back to Atlanta, Houston, Dallas. Why do you think that is? Why do you think so many people are just migrating back south? Quite frankly, when you think about the north, it really comes down to affordability. So uh, generally speaking, the price per square foot is a lot less down south. And also you get more for more, essentially more bang for your buck. When you speak to Dallas and you speak to Texas as a whole, uh, there isn't state tax. So with the lack of state tax, that's one reason why, you know, uh, many people are migrating there. You know, when you look at bigger cities like New York, obviously, we know how expensive it is. Chicago, that's where I live now. Uh, Los Angeles. You know that the city, as you said, is definitely more expensive, uh, but this also could have a political impact because when we look at what happened in Georgia as far as politics turning the state uh, blue for the first time, do you think that we could see that same sort of thing happen? Or, you know, states uh, such as Illinois or New York State um, or California start to have a little bit of a political struggle when it comes to holding on to that that Democrat base? I definitely see that being a huge um, turning point for the, the political landscape, because a lot of times Democrats are going to end up, you know, realizing that they can't afford this place, they can't afford to live here, and that's going to impact their, their, their voting situation down, you know, in the road. And we do see a, a lot of movements. One in particular that we've talked about here on Revolt Black News Weekly is buying back the block. But do you see this as potentially impacting uh, our community in a way when it comes to gentrification. The whole notion of buying back the block is great, but when you buy back the block, oftentimes it's an investment piece that you know whomever the prospective invest, whatever the prospective investor is purchasing. So they then are looking for the maximum amount of return for their property. So oftentimes the rent roll, the amount of rent they're asking for, you know. People really can't afford it, and we have to. They really have to consider what the margins are, and consider who those, who your uh, your demographic is, and if they can still stay in that state and/or city. Now, conversely, though, the other thing that I think is really important is that um, the whole notion of gentrification. We have to consider that that does create a lot of wealth because a lot of the initial homeowners were people of color. So when you look at, you know, whether it be Los Angeles, Chicago, New York, there are a, a sizable amount of people who purchased homes, you know, decades ago. And now because they choose to sell and they're going to make upwards of maybe 200, 200% more than what they initially purchased the profit, purchased the home for. Because if you move down south and you, you know, you have upwards of 20, you know, 
$2 million liquid, and I'm just considering New York City, where some people can sell their homes for that amount and purchase it for maybe all of $100,000, and you have that much liquid and you're going down south, and then that lends itself to changing the dynamic of, of you know, that family in the future. Jeffrey, thank you so much for sharing so much important information about the new migration. Now, coming up, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Yaba Blay, who is going to break down all of the controversy surrounding Rihanna's recent Savage X Fenty fashion show. Keep it right here with Revolt Black News Weekly. Fenty fashion at its finest. Welcome back to Revolt Black News Weekly. I am guest correspondent, Dr. Yava Blay. Rihanna Savage X Fenty fashion show sent social media into a tailspin. Users raised questions about cultural appropriation, and today we're gonna take it a bit further. We are going to figure out the line between fashion and cultural appropriation. And joining me today is Essence Beauty and Style Editor, Blake Newby. Let's get started. Hi, Blake. Hi, thank you for having me. Of course, this is going to be fun. So we've seen the Twitterverse. We've seen yes. what everybody has to say. Talk yes. to me about Savage X Fenty fashion show and the backlash that it's been receiving across social media. At issue, folks feel some type of way about non-Black models wearing hairstyles that we know to be Black. Is there a line? between fashion and appropriation when it comes to hairstyles? What do you think? Well, you know, I think that, you know, this is this is a very nuanced um, um, situation that, we, that we're seeing with this one in particular. You know, there's such a long history, especially of black women. We very much cherish and protect the hairstyles that we love that have such rich, rich history amongst us. Um, and so, for Savage X Fenty and the fashion show, you know, one thing that Rihanna has long been known for is her ride or die attitude for black women. Um, and for the things that, that, that are near and dear to us. So I think that for many people, I think that the, the braids on the models, um, it was more than just like the, oh, this is cultural appropriation, but there was a bit of a shock there. It's interesting that you bring that up because one of the tweets that stood out to me is by Twitter user Dylan Ali. And she said, I love the Fenty show, but I think we deserved a trigger warning for seeing this many white women in braids. And I think you're exactly right. It has a lot to do with what we expect from Rihanna's brand. You know, I often cite the brand as one that gets it right. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Bada ba ba ba. At participating McDonald's. When it comes yeah. to showing the diversity of our beauty, right, in the mainstream. And so I think for many of us, and, and as this user points to, it's like, we need some warning here. We weren't expecting see this, right? Another thing I saw in the Twitterverse was uh, white users immediately jumping to defense. I saw some tweets uh, pointing to the idea that white folks wore braids in ancient Russia or that um, braids were worn by the Nordic race. Are we able to say fairly, historically accurately, that braids are an African hairstyle? What do you think? 
I think I, I'm, I'm going to be honest just to, you know, when I, when I see responses like that, like, oh, well, there were people in Britain. Yes. Okay. But let's talk. I feel like it, that's almost obtuse that I feel like comments like that are, are a little bit like, yes, nobody is saying that braids have only ever and only been seen, um, you know, in Africa and then here on black women. But there is something to be said about the way not only that black women um, innovated braids, you know, but the meaning behind braids for us, you know, braids were not just a hairstyle for us. Women were braiding pad slaves were braiding patterns into their hair for escape routes. So the meaning is very different. So I, I, I'm no historian. You know, I, I am not one to say exactly where and when braids originated, but I think that one thing that is ind indisputable is the history and the, the evolution of hair and the way that black women have, you know, really evolved braids. And there's the history of black hair for sure. But the other thing comments like that overlook are the politics at play, right? For example, we now have the Crown Act. And the fact that there has to be legislation in place to protect us Black women against the bias and discrimination that takes place in the workplace just because we want to wear our hair in culturally appropriate hairstyles says a lot, right? Yeah. yeah. Why do you think it is that these styles are praised when it comes to women who aren't Black wearing them or frowned upon when we wear them? I'm going to be honest. I think that one thing that we talk about often is it all comes down to texturism. Um, mm. I think that, you know, when we speak about it's it's kind of a, a similar uh, discussion that women have about body size. You know, why can mm. one woman wear, some, wear something and another woman wear the exact same thing and one be deemed appropriate and one be deemed inappropriate? Um, I think that, you know, there are these respectability politics of what hair looks clean, what hair looks neat, and it continues to be the things that the Crown Act um, to this day is fighting against, you know, and unfortunately, there are still states, most states, it is completely legal to discriminate um, against us because of, the, because of the way that our hair looks. Blake, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for your insight. The pleasure is all mine. Thank you for having me. All right, thank you, Dr. Blay. Now, before we let you go, some exciting news for us here at Revolt. As our founder and chairman, Sean Combs, announced the three-day star-studded return of the Revolt Summit with AT&T in Atlanta, Georgia. Y'all, the sessions empower and inspire black leaders of tomorrow. The summit kicks off November 11th through the 13th. You don't want to miss it. That's going to do it for us here at Revolt Black News Weekly. I'm Ebony K. Williams. See you next time. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Bada -ba -ba -ba. At participating McDonald's.